again. I said two weeks ago, and we'll be in five today, and then five again next week. It is a difficult passage. It is a difficult passage simply because people want to make it say something that at first blush it looks like is being said, but the more you examine Scripture with Scripture, and that is something that's important, that we are always careful to uh, consider Scripture with other Scriptures. We simply can't take texts and make God say one thing and then another text. It looks like a contradiction. It's not a contradiction. Both things are true, so how do they fit? And um, the passage in question in specifically is in that section in Romans chapter 5, verses 12, through the end of the chapter, and I'll just touch on a few of those verses. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Jumping down, when he talks about... Um, Verse 15, the gift is not like the trespass. If many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Verse 18, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man the many will be made righteous. And the difficulty with the passage again is, does the many, does the all apply to the same group in both cases? And the position that I started taking is they do not and we'll discuss that a little bit further in a few moments. I started watching something on HBO the other day. It's called Band of Brothers. And it caught my attention because it was based on World War II, and in particular, uh, that section of World War II, 43, 44, 45, that my father was over in Europe during, as Dad used to say, the walking tour of Europe. Dad was a paratrooper. He jumped 13 times from planes. They were, I think, each of the planes that he jumped from were DC-9s. Um, and this follows a group of individuals. Uh, uh, fictionally, uh, there was a group called Easy Company, but this is a fictional account. And uh, Easy Company was a, a group of paratroopers from the 82nd Airborne, of which my father was in the 82nd Airborne. And the thing that struck me as I was watching the end of the very, I think, the first episode, they are about to storm the uh, beaches in Normandy on D-Day. And I remember talking to my dad. He didn't like to talk much about war because, you know, we, we look at war and we look at the military and what the military does and kind of romanticize 
thick of it, it was not anything at all romantic for them. And by romantic, I simply mean, you know, this idea that it's somehow this idealized view of, of life. It was, it was hard. It was difficult. It was deadly. He saw people die. He saw a guy that their parachutes did not deploy go right into the ground. He saw other guys that were literally shot out of the sky. He saw other guys that as they're coming down, they were hit by shrapnel. And the end of the first episode, the beginning of the second episode, is exactly that. Easy Company is about to jump out of their DC-9. And there is fighting going on, and there are planes all around them. And some of these planes are being bombed right out of the sky. And I couldn't imagine that. And then I started thinking about it. And I don't know why I made this jump in my mind. But, you know, let's just say the Lord led me to think like this. I was thinking about the enemy. Earlier in the day, my wife sent me a couple of different texts. And one in particular uh, that, that caught my attention was based on um, the, uh, the the thing that you know our kids used to watch when they were little kids. Blues Clues, right? Yeah. Awful, awful what they're doing with Blues Clues. They are taking Blues Clues, and now they've created a song, and the song has everything to do with the LGBT community. You know, here's the family, and the family is two, and the family is three, and the family is four, and they all love each other, and they're all this, and they're all that. There's two mommies, and there's two daddies, and there's three parents, and there's this, and there's the transgendered brothers and sisters. And I'm thinking, this is going out into the world around us. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about the band of brothers. And I thought, folks, Spiritually speaking, we're in that DC-9 with God's people in a world that's under a battle like we've never, ever, ever seen in our lifetime. A real battle. And you know what struck me as I'm watching the Band of Brothers and I'm thinking about this? There's no let up. All they wanted was the enemy to stop firing on them. All they wanted was the shrapnel in the sky to stop. All they wanted was the machine guns from the other side to stop. We're living in a world in which the enemy is coming over and over and over and over and over. There's crazy... Uh, thing on YouTube. Again, it it's, gives you the same picture in a different kind of way where they take two different sides and they pit them against each other. So the one side might be a mo hundred modern soldiers against 10,000 Spartans. And then it's like the battle starts and you watch this for five minutes and it's like, who's going to win? And some of them are realistic, and some of them are just silly. You know, the silly one might be like, you know, here's 100 modern soldiers against 10,000 zombies. 
all right? But here's another one where it's like, you know, the, the, the Spartans against, um, uh, you know, X number of people from the Civil War. And again, who's going to win? And the one thing that you're struck with is the side with the most, they just keep coming and keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. We're living in that world. There isn't going to be a let up. <coughs> there isn't going to be a let up. And you better be like Lyle. Where are you going to stand? Are you going to stand for the truth? Regardless. No matter what. Even to the point of death, you better. And you better make that resolve now. Because the day of the fiery furnace is coming. The day of the lion's den is coming. The day when somebody's asking you, who are you standing for? Is coming. And the people of God better be praying up one another and backing up one another. I say this because when it comes to passages like this and other passages, sometimes somebody will say something to me like this. Well, I know what I believe. Okay, I hear you say that. But what does that mean? Tell me then what you believe. And if you can't tell me what you believe, then don't tell me that you believe something. Before we go any further, though, let's just take a moment and ask God to help us again with this passage. And I need to remember not to move away from the mic, which I did last week. And Alan wanted to beat me with the mic. No, he didn't. He just said, don't move away from the mic. Let's pray. Father, truth is truth, and we ask for grace to believe it no matter where it leads. And to the measure that we have embraced something that is not truth, help us to lose it. Help us to forget it. Regardless of how dear it is and how long it's been in our hearts and how long we've trusted it, if it doesn't square with the scriptures, help us to just lay it aside. Lord, what we don't know, teach us. What we don't have, grant us. What we are not, make us. For your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Romans chapter 5, you have two individuals. Remember the circles last week, if you were here. If you weren't here, I'll just do it again real quick. Pretend I'm holding a circle over here. Pretend I'm, I'm holding another, another circle here. This circle re refers to all of us by virtue of we are part of mankind. Adam in the garden, stood representing the entire human race. Wasn't his choice, it was God's choice. Whatever Adam did was going to have either benefit 
or hurt to the rest of us, all of the human race, forever. If Adam obeyed, there would be blessing. There would be life to Adam and Eve and their progeny forever. If they disobeyed, there would be death. And again, death, we need to think of two ways. There is physical death and there is spiritual death. Spiritual death for them happened instantly. In that death that way, think of simply as separation from God. Not ultimately, but separate from God until God made overtures in their direction to reestablish fellowship with him. Physical death would happen eventually for them, and they died. And throughout the scriptures, the history of mankind since Adam and Eve has been, and he died, 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 and so on and so forth. With two exceptions, and only two exceptions, two individuals have not experienced death. Enoch, it says in Genesis, Enoch walked with God and was not. And I think at about age 320, 330, somewhere around there, apparently God brought him into his presence. He did not experience death. The other was far more dramatic. God sent a fiery chariot to pick somebody special up, and that special person was Elijah, not Elisha. Eli Elisha was his protege who took over that ministry. But Elijah was called into the presence of God by virtue of a fiery chariot. With those two exceptions, every person, including the incarnate Son of God, experienced death. Out of the entire human race, only one of those individuals has been resurrected from the dead, and that's the Lord Jesus. Other people have been raised from the dead, but that's different from resurrection. Jesus said that he had the power to lay his life down, and he alone had the power to take his life up again. And whereas Adam was we call him a type of Christ. Christ comes along, and when in Romans 5, Paul is talking about, in Adam all die, so in Christ all are made alive. Here's the other circle. The other circle is made up not of every human being, It is made up of all that the Father, before time, before the creation, chose to give to the Son. And in time, 
if you are a Christian, God has called you to himself. The work of Christ was sufficient for all. Efficient only for those who are his. Now, I've spent the time, and I want to spend just a little bit more time, because again, some passages are, for lack of a better way of saying it, not troublesome, but difficult to understand. One that often comes up is always John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he did love the world. And he gave his son for all who believe in him will have eternal life. And only for those who believe in him. Those who don't believe in him will not have eternal life. Now, a passage that always comes up in a discussion as to who does God really want saved, Pastor Bill? And they always go to this passage. In 2 Peter chapter 3, the context is this. Peter is speaking about the coming day of the Lord. He's also addressing his epistles to a specific group of individuals. In his first epistle, he's addressing them to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. He's talking to believers. In 2 Peter chapter 1, he says this, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. He's again talking to believers. And the context that he's speaking of in 2 Peter chapter 3 is a context in which there are going to be people who come along and say to believers, you're believing in nonsense. Jesus isn't coming back. In fact, he says, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the commands given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. You must understand in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is his coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on since the beginning. And he says these people are deliberately ignorant, but there's a reason that Jesus has not come yet. Pick up the narrative at verse 8. Don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, 
Who's the you? The you are the believers, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Who's going to come to repentance? All of those who are believers. All of those who have been given to Christ by the Father. John 17. Again, a basic method of interpretation in, in understanding the Scriptures the right way is you always have to compare Scripture with Scripture. And you can't say that God the Father gave a definite group of people to Jesus, but then Jesus' salvation is for everybody. It's not. It's just not. And then go back to the Romans 5 passage, and then it begins to make sense when you start thinking it through and understand that the many and the all with regard to Adam as the entire human race, the many and the all with regard to King Jesus are those who are Jesus' people, past, present, and future, who perhaps have not yet been called yet. And Jesus is not willing that any of those individuals will perish, and that's why Jesus is delaying his return. But when the last one has been called, then I think, guess what? Jesus is going to come with a loud trumpet and the voice of many angels. We need to understand and be careful that when we go through these passages, there are similarities, but at the same time there are contrasts that are important. Among the similarities are these. Both Adam and Christ are appointed by God to represent other individuals besides themselves. But the other individuals are not the same individuals. Again, Adam is standing for you and me and all of the human race. And in their disobedience with Adam and Eve, in Adam all die. So we come into this world, and how do we come into this world? The Apostle Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 2. If you wish, turn over to Ephesians 2. Ephesians is right after the book of Galatians, right before the book of Colossians. Hear these words. As for you, again he's speaking here to believers, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the world, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time. Who's he talking about? He's talking about everybody who is a Christian who before they were a Christian, they were dead in their trespasses and sins. You came into this world born spiritually dead in need of something that Jesus first addresses and most directly addresses with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you got to be born again. Why do I need to be born again? 
You need to be born again, Nicodemus, because you're born dead in your trespasses and your sins. Who's going to be born again? Here's a question to you. Is everybody that's ever walked the face of the earth going to be born again? They're not. How is a person born again? A person isn't born again because, you know, they were smarter than the other person. A person is born again when the Holy Spirit of God takes the Word of God, plants it within the heart of the unregenerate man or woman, boy or girl, and then with that creates spiritual life. The result of that that we see is what? Repentance and faith, but the repentance and faith come after the new birth. They are not causal for the new birth. Does everybody understand that? It's important that you get that. Because otherwise, if you think that it's the other way, then the, the, what you're left with is, well, isn't it potential that, that everybody could be saved? No, it's not. It's just not. The call goes out to all. The call is a very true universal call. But the internal call of the Holy Spirit is not a universal call. It is a definite call to all who Christ died for. How does Jesus put it? Many are called, but few are what? Few are chosen. Few are chosen. Now, here's something that always befuddles me, but then again, I've been there. So, I was among the befuddled at one point. I used to rant and rave when I would get into discussions with people about this before I believed this, and I would say things like, some of you might be sitting there thinking, well, that's just not fair. Until I came to a place where knowing me, and God knows me far better than me, Nevertheless, I can stand here right now and say, despite all my faults and all my sins, I truly believe God chose me. And I'm thankful for that. And quite frankly, I don't care a whit whether or not that's, quote, fair. The fact that God chose any is an amazing thing. God didn't need to choose you or anyone else. But he did. Why did he do that? He did that for his own glory. He did that, if you want to get more specific than that, read it slowly and read it with a humble heart. Because if you don't read it with a humble heart, you'll want to tear the page right out of your Bible. Read Romans chapter 9, slowly. And you see the way God's promises worked were not according to birth order. God randomly chose Abraham. God, after he chose Abraham, chose Isaac, not Ishmael. After that, he chose Jacob, not Esau. After that, he chose Joseph. 
and not all of the others, even though Joseph wouldn't have been the one qualified. He wasn't the firstborn, and so forth. God chose Moses to be the deliverer for Israel, and so on and so forth. And if you look at your own individual lives, I mean, for me, it's an easy thing. God chose me. He didn't choose my brothers, and he didn't choose my father. And I don't know why he didn't, but he didn't. And your situation may be similar. You may be in a situation where you have a family and you have many siblings and maybe God chose you and one or two of the other siblings, but he didn't choose them all. And I'm not going to be so charitable that I think, well, you know, everybody else was just saved by deathbed conversions. I don't think there's a whole lot of deathbed conversions, quite frankly. I think the way a person lives is pretty much the way they're going to die. I think if somebody hated God throughout their life, you know, I don't know that when they're breathing their last, they're reaching out to God and saying, Lord, save me. Maybe they are. But I, I'm, and I've read enough other people that agree with me on that, that I'm not holding out hope that everybody else in my family or all my other friends that, you know, I've known over the years that I think some are in heaven and some are in hell that the ones in hell, oh, maybe I'm going to see them. No, I don't think about that a whole lot. I think the ones that are in hell are probably in hell. Now, again, is this a popular message? No, it's not. But go back to what Ryle said. we got to stay with the truth. And we need to take a hard look at the truth. And when we're looking at the Romans 5 passage, we need to understand that the all that Adam represented is not the same all that Jesus represented. Both Adam and Christ became heads of particular bodies of people. Think of it this way. Adam stood in the place of what we might call all of, but old humanity. Christ stands in the place of what? The new humanity. God is making for himself a new people. God is making for himself a people who hear God's word and believe it, and they demonstrate their belief in their obedience to it. Both Adam and Christ had covenants made with them by God himself. A covenant is a easiest way to think of it, is like a contract. In the case of his relationship with Adam and in the case of his relationship with Christ, it is a unilateral contract. God is saying, you do this and this happens. He's saying the same with Christ. Even though Christ is the second person of the Trinity, 
There is ample evidence throughout the books of the Gospels, particularly the book of John. Jesus repeatedly is saying, I've come to do what? I've come to do the Father's will. The words that I speak are not my own. The things that I do are not my own. He's not doing them just, he's not getting up in the morning saying, oh, you know what, I think that I'll just say this today, and I think that I'll do this today. He's very much come to do the Father's will. And he does it perfectly. Both Adam and Christ passed on to others the effects of their obedience or their disobedience. There was an author and, and pastor who served for many years at Westminster Chapel, one of my favorite authors, a fellow by the name of Demartine Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones was a, a doctor professionally and at some point became a pastor and eventually became the pastor at Westminster Chapel in London, authored many books, many commentaries, and he said this, Adam's sins and its consequences are passed on to all without regard, or excuse me, to, to all without exception. Christ's obedience results in righteousness being passed on how? by virtue of belief in him. In other words, whereas a result of Adam's disobedience, your sin is automatic. Your sin nature is automatic. As a result of what Christ did on the cross, your righteousness is not automatic. It, in fact, requires your participation, which, spelled out another way, is believe and repent. If you don't believe and you don't repent, you will not enjoy the consequences of Christ's obedience on the cross. So here's a person who says, well, I believe Jesus died for me. Have you repented of your sins? No. Have you truly believed in Jesus? No. Why do you believe that? Because it says, in Adam all die, so in Christ all are made alive. You don't understand the way it works then. That's why this passage is critical to understand. Again, what Adam did in the garden affected all of us. We weren't there. What Christ did on the cross has to be gotten by you as a result of faith and repentance and your subsequent obedience. Without that, you're not saved. In fact, I want you to think about it for a moment. Even though you might find comfort in John 17 the passage that we read last week, of some being given to Christ by the Father. Think for a moment. 
Some of you are in your 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and even 70s. Was there not a time that you were not a believer? There was a time I was not a believer. What was I? I was a sinner. I was a child of wrath. I was, a I was an individual that was going to hell until something happened in time. And that's the difference. The benefits of what Jesus did on the cross impact on the believer in time. The effects of what Adam did impact on you simply by virtue of your birth. You don't become a sinner like when you're four. You're born a sinner in need of being born again. That's the difference. That's what we need to get through and understand here in the Romans 5 passage. Again, it's a difficult passage. In terms of the contrast, the disobedience of one brought death to all, but the obedience of one brought salvation to many. But the many, again, are only those who in time will show themselves to be Christ by receiving the word, believing and repenting. When we think of the difference between one sin and many sins, in the case of Adam, judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. God's gift, on the other hand, followed many sins. I mean, think about this for a moment. Adam committed one sin. If that was the only thing that Adam ever did, we still would have been born sinners. Do you understand that? In the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. One sin. Think about your life. Again, think about what you were like before you became a Christian. Part of our challenge is we need to think about how bad we were. How bad we were. You know, we can take a great lesson from Mary. Do you remember Mary Magdalene? She's at Simon the Pharisee's house. It's the episode where she has the alabaster jar. She takes the jar, it's filled with perfume. It's filled with a perfume called Nard, N-A-R-D. She takes it. It's worth a year's wages. She breaks open the jar, covers Jesus' feet, with the perfume, then covers his feet with her tears and wipes the feet of the perfume and the tears with her hair. 
Simon the Pharisee is beside himself. He just can't believe that this woman of ill repute is allowed to be, first of all, in proximity to Jesus, let alone touching Jesus. And what's interesting there is there's not conversation going on. There's not, like, whispering going on. It simply says in that passage, I believe it's in Luke chapter 7, but I'm not sure. It's in Luke. Jesus says, or it says this, and Jesus, knowing his thoughts, starts a conversation with Simon. And he says, you know, I came into your house. You really didn't greet me. You didn't make me feel at home. This woman has been doing nothing but, you know, fawning all over me. You didn't wash my feet. She's washing my feet with her, with her tears. And at some point, the punchline of the story goes like this. When he starts talking, he says, Simon, who do you think loves much? And Simon hits the nail right on the head. And he says, the one who's been forgiven much. I think part of the problem that we have is we think that most of our sins have been like really no big deal. We just don't think that, you know, our sins were that bad compared to other people in our family, compared to other people that we've known. You know, there's 7 billion people on planet Earth, Lord. I'm, I'm not like, yeah, there's a whole lot of people below me, aren't there? Instead of understanding that every single one of your sins and mine put Jesus on the cross. And he died for you. And not simply did nothing with your sins. In fact, it's made clear in Colossians chapter when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature God made you alive with Christ he forgave us all our sins who's he talking to? believers the us there is no different than the all in the Romans 5 passage with regard to Christ. It pertains to believers. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. If you are a believer, believe that. Forget trying to feel it. If you try to feel it and feel like, oh, I think, you know, I don't know if I feel like I'm a Christian. Stop playing with God in that regard and start believing what God says. He says in real time what happened 2,000 years ago, even though you weren't born yet and you didn't believe yet, 
that the effectual work of Jesus took every single one of your sins, past, present, and future, and nailed it to the cross once and for all. And when a person starts believing in Christ, in that moment he is justified, as if he's never sinned. And that justification continues forever. It means your slate is wiped clean and that you're right with God and you are made perfect in Him at that moment. You're not going to become more perfect in Him. You are perfect in Him. That's justification. Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit that continues throughout the rest of your life. And you put the two together and what you get is Hebrews 10.14 which goes, by one sacrifice he has made, past tense with a continuous action, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So a person believes in Christ, they're born again by the Holy Spirit of God, They're demonstrating to themselves and to the believing community they're one of those that Jesus was given before time by the Father and Jesus died for that person and said, I'm taking your sins and we're nailing them to the cross. And you apprehend that not by how you feel about God or how you feel about you. You believe that, and that becomes your point of faith, not your feelings. If you want to focus on your feelings, then you're going to struggle all of your days with matters of assurance, and you're going to be tossed about. And God doesn't want us to be tossed about, but God wants our anchor to be based on his truth, not on how we feel. Well, the Lord willing, will pick up with this and conclude Romans chapter 5 next week. Again, read through it. Any questions that you may have, please raise them to me so that I can address them. Um, And again, not an easy passage, but a passage that I think we need to uh, wrap our heads and our hearts around because it's such a vital thing, especially in a day and age in which the choice is really this. Either Christ died for everybody or Christ died for a definite sum. And I take the second position. He died for a definite group. He did not die for everybody. Raise it later. Raise it. Now we're going to we'll address your questions later. Okay? Okay. All right, let's pray. Father, again, we ask that you would take these things and to the measure that we've been accurate, that you would help us to remember them and to the measure that there's been anything said that has been inaccurate, help us to quickly forget it and to press on in search of the truth. Help us to stand for those things that are true even if we stand alone. Lord, we pray that you would provide us with what we need for the remaining of this day And for the week ahead, we thank you for hearing us in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to say one.